Well, we continue in the Revelation, and in John's Revelation, Jesus is both the revealer and the revealed. In the first chapter, Jesus is presented as reigning Lord. As Lord of the church, he speaks to them in chapters 2 and 3 by commending and confronting them uh, based upon where they stand. Then in chapter 4, John is taken up into heaven and he is before the throne room of God and he sees him as the one who reigns over all in his sovereignty and his glory and he sees the response of those there worshiping him. When you get to chapter 5 and you, you, you sit before that text, you see that the, the one on the throne is holding a, a scroll with seven seals on it. And in heaven, it's kind of silent in a sense where everyone is sitting there watching the one holding the scroll and an angel asks, who is worthy? <clears throat> and there is no one found worthy. And John begins to weep. And as he begins to weep, one tells him to, to, to stop weeping because the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah... Uh, the, the root of David is worthy to open the scroll and its seals. If you remember, the scroll or book is best understood as containing God's plans of judgment and redemption, which was set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but is yet to be completed. And so this seal is there and you're wondering who's worthy. We say the lamb is worthy, the one who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he comes forward and he takes the scroll and out of the hand of the one who sits on the throne. And then all heaven bursts forth in joy and in worship and praising both the lamb and the one seated on the throne. And so that's where we've been. We've seen that on display. And so naturally, the next step is to go into chapter 6. And you see in chapter 6 that the one who took the scroll, the lamb who was slain, he is now about to break open its seals. And we're going to see that on display. In chapter 6, we have six of the seven seals that will be opened. These seals reveal that Jesus is judging the earth. We'll see wars, natural disasters, death, all are signs of the Lord's coming judgment. And sometimes I think, um, you know, they're in the forefront of our minds and other times maybe we're not thinking of it as clearly, but these judgments will come and culminate in a final judgment where the wicked will be finally judged and God's people will be set up eternally experiencing the joy of being in his presence. Now, what do we need to do like with this text? Like if you're stopping to think about it for a moment, I think one thing we have to say is our minds and affections need to be shaped by the Bible. Sometimes when we read a text like this, if we're not careful, we may forget about it. But I think it's very important that we need to, to see that. We need to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and, and in doing so, we will love His glory. And, and the reality is, is we will see here that God is committed to his glory he is committed to that in a very clear way and we need to understand that because we will see something about God that some people never want to talk about in this text so the main point is this God is just and he will justly repay all the ways that his glory has been despised and his holiness defiled God will judge 
his, not only does he judge his people, we see in chapters 2 and 3, but he will judge the wicked, and it's very clear in this text. So I think we'll see that. I think it will help you to see that. I think it will help you to understand what's going on in our world to see that. I think there's a lot of people right now with a lot of uncertainty in this world and a lot of fear and a lot of like wondering what's going on and thinking that somehow if we could change some circumstances that all would be right. The reality is that is not the case because that is not Jesus' plan. And we need to see that and understand it and, and examine that. So if you'll look at it just real quick, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, you see four seals and four horsemen. 6, 9 through 11, you see the fifth seal, and there are martyrs there. In 6, 12 through 17, the sixth seal, and you see signs in heaven. So we'll work through those, and as you do, hopefully you'll be able to put it all together. So let's look at those four seals and four horsemen. Just to start with, I think it's important to say Uh, The first four seals, Christ is using evil heavenly forces to inflict trials on people throughout this age. Now, here's what he does. And I think it's very important. You've got to note this in your mind. Either for purification, that is for his church, or punishment. So we, we could see here, Christ uses evil heavenly forces to inflict trials on people throughout this age. It is either used to purify his church or to punish the wicked. So that will help you, I think, as you move through this text. The first four seals show how his authority extends even over situations of suffering sent from the hand of God to purify the saints and punish unbelievers. So it is something that God is doing. God is doing this, or you could say, you want to say, Christ is doing it. The Father and the Son are certainly doing it. It is part of God's plan to bring about suffering in the present. And He is doing that. And so you need to see that because I think even later you'll see that or earlier in Ephesians, I mean, sorry, in Revelation and later in the rest of the book. But in chapters 2 and 3, we see that. We see the saints suffering in the present. And that God is accomplishing His plan. Now, you, you also just want to note that this is not the only place in the Bible this is mentioned. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24. But also in Ezekiel, you'll see sword and famine and wild beast and plagues. All of that kind of on display there that God is working out his plan. In addition, just so you kind of, as you're thinking about this concept, in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, you kind of get this understanding that these martyrs suffered under all these trials that are portrayed in verses 1 through 8. So the martyrs are suffering. People, God's people, are dying during this time. The time between, and I've said this over and over, between the first and second coming of Christ, that is what I think we're dealing with in these first four seals and what you'll see is the martyrs in heaven and kind of a description of what is actually taking place and understand in the heavenly places what is going on maybe more fully in verses 9 through 11 now um so so just just think it's important just to say these tribulations will cease only at the time of christ's final return And you'll see that in verses 12 through 17. So let's just lay that out real quick. 1 through 8, Jesus is sending out these horsemen 
to do his work of purifying his church and judging the wicked. This will continue on throughout this period between the first and second coming of Christ. When you're taken up into this heavenly place, you see the saints there, the martyrs there. And the Lord says the thing that will cut this thing to the end will be when all of those, all of his people have been uh, experienced whatever suffering they're going to experience in the present. And when that is done, then the final coming of Christ happens in 12 through 17 and you see the wicked judge forever. And finally, you might say, okay, that's how I see it. I think it's very easy to see that in this text, and I hope that uh, it will help you as we move forward. Now, and man, it's just so prevalent. My God is not like that. God could not really be involved in disaster. God's hands are tied. He's wondering what's going on in this world. You hear that kind of stuff? You hear people saying kind of like, well, when calamity strikes, God surely is not involved. That's foolish. It is unbiblical. It is not a clear picture of what is taking place in this text. But for that matter, throughout the Bible, I could build a case for you. And honestly, if you just read your Bible, you could build the case too. God is involved in the calamity and he is accomplishing his plan. You look at the life of Job and you say, who inflicted all those difficulties on Job? Well, some people might say Satan. Other people might say God. I would say God had sent Satan to Job to afflict him. So it's both. But God is the one in charge of his life. He even limits what Satan can do. So I just think it's important we start there and understand that and grasp that as we move again through this text. So verse 1 and 2. Now watch when the Lamb opened up one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Now remember, these these heavenly beings are under the, the, the lordship of not only the one on the throne, but the lordship of Christ. Christ has just been given that appointed place of Lord over human history. He earned it. And now he is sending these heavenly beings out to do his work. And as they're doing his work, he says to them, tell them to come. And he calls up these horsemen. Now. So I think it's just like as we move through it, I think it's just helpful for you to see that this book then uh, that that, that as we're laying this out, we're going to see him uh, sending out or calling out these these uh, angelic figures or whatever that you want to say these horses and riders are some some level of that this apocalyptic vision to allow you to understand what is taking place on earth. You notice the first one is this white horse its rider had a bow a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer now i think this first rider is you're looking at it he is he's he's there it's been a given to him his place of authority that he is exercising this judgment was given to him 
It's not something that he gave to himself or he earned. It was given to him. And you notice as you move through it, I think it's this kind of another satanic force to, to really, and I think throughout this, is to defeat and oppress the church either by deception or by some, some sort of persecution. Now, putting this together in your mind, I think it's helpful too to see later in the Revelation, Jesus is wearing this kind of garb. And so some people might say, well, that's probably Jesus. Well, I don't think so. Because in light of the four, as you put them together, I don't think it's Jesus. I think it's some semblance of a false Jesus, a false Savior. Um, it's one of those things where you could say uh, it's to look like Jesus. So that the world, in a sense, uh, and, and even the, Jesus will speak of the church, uh, maybe being led astray by these false things. And so part of like the falsehood Jesus puts into the life of the church, even for us to face it so that we might persevere and so that we might grow in wisdom and so that we might be discerning. And so he is he is he's keeping his people in the midst of this. But no, there, there's no limit to the false kind of saviors in our world. They're constantly there. And the church struggles with that. We struggle with that. We honestly have to say sometimes the things that we are trusting in are, are really are not Jesus. Maybe we're trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in what we've accomplished. We're trusting in stuff, all kinds of stuff. Maybe I think in my mind, if I could just have these things lay out perfectly, then the rest of my life would be safe. I'd be at peace, all that kind of stuff. And we have these false saviors in our world. For some people, it's a governmental leader. For some, it's the economy. Another person, it might be that they think, oh, if I'm connected to this person, everything will be okay. I can trust in them. And you see it around the world where people are, listen, it's a judgment of God. Because for the wicked, when they are trusting in these false saviors, they'll go where those false saviors go. Their end will be at what the false savior's end is. And for the church, when they face a false savior, what they're doing is they are learning that their true savior is the Christ. He is helping them put their hope in him and resting in his provision. And they're having to learn to walk by faith rather than sight. These false saviors offer victory in the present. And the reality is they may appear that way in the present, but ultimately it'll all come crumbling down. And so I think that's this first one presented. One that offers security in the present age. Second, verse 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come again from the throne. God is sending out these instruments of judgment. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So whereas the first horseman introduces the attempt of Satan to gain dominion over the world, the second horseman seeks to take peace from the earth by stirring up strife and warfare with the world's nations. And so again, I mean, these images that are apocalyptic in nature, it's not like we're sitting there saying, uh-oh, did you hear that galloping outside? I hear it. I hear him coming, you know, and we're all scared and go run and hide in the corner. It's not like that, but we understand that these things are going on and it's a visual picture for you to grasp in your mind that is the red horse. That's what that is. 
That's what's going on around me. That's why there's so much war and so much strife and so much difficulty. When you look, for instance, and from what I understand, in the 20th century, there are more people killed as a result of war in the 20th century than all other centuries combined. And so you're saying the red horse is still galloping along. And he is dividing the people and the nations of the earth. Remember, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus is, at one level you say, behind all of this. Jesus is accomplishing his plan. And what is he doing with the disciples in Matthew 10? He is helping them grow in faith and to hold fast to the Lord and walk faithfully with him. And the reality is, when the division comes in this world, Jesus is dividing the people as they're destroying one another. And so it's very important, I think, to understand that it's really for the church. We know it's God's will that we might suffer. But in our tribulation, he is growing us up so that we'll be refined and prepared for our, our husband. But for the unbelieving world, this is a judgment upon them. And war is horrible and the darkness is great. Verse 5 and 6, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, scales in that time period would be really, uh, it's a picture of famine, During that time, they would do that. They would ration out the food. And so they would put scales there and say, you can only have so much. And so they would give you that amount. This is a picture of great inflation. Uh, The prices were roughly 8 to 16 times the normal going price. You notice that the oil and wine is to be left alone. This was really reserved for the wealthy in that culture. And so there's something of it that is reminding the church in their persecuted place, in their struggle, really, they were almost a marginalized people. We saw in Revelation 2 and 3, a lot of them were very uh, poor. They, had, they couldn't like find work oftentimes. And so what you see there, I think, it's, and it's very important, is that maybe the church is looking at that and saying, although we may be persecuted great, we know that behind all the lo- this, the Lord is working on our behalf. And later in the Revelation, actually in chapter 7, this is what you hear. To the church, they shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And so there's this picture here that it's, he's going to rescue his people. But in the present, they will suffer as the world suffers. Their suffering is coming uh, uh, by way of helping them grow up in the faith and to, to mature and to become what they should be. And the suffering of the world is just judgment upon them. Verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider was named Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and and wild beasts of the earth. You notice here, Death and Hades. Again, Jesus is sending this out. Jesus is doing this. He is working out his plan on earth. And as he do, he does, death is coming. We, we're going to read in, in verses 9 through 11, some of 
God's disciples, Christ's people throughout the ages die. Part of that, they experience some of the judgment that's taking place in the present, but they will not experience the eternal judgment. And so in verses 9 through 11, you're going to see that on display. Now, I think you just see here in verses 7 and 8, again, death is coming. That's kind of the, the, the last result. Like war, you say there's a war, but ultimately in war, people die, right? And so here we're seeing that ultimately death comes to some. Some experience the judgment of God as outside of Christ. They will die in those judgments. Others who are in Christ, although their bodies die, they will be with the Lord. Now, at the end of this verse 8, you'll see these uh, fourfold kind of judgments. It's just important to note that you see that like in Ezekiel 14. And you see that many other different places, or many places based really often on idolatry. The judgment of God falling on people who are idolatrous. And what you see throughout is those things mentioned. Famine, war, plague, all of that stuff taking place. You notice here too, a fourth of the earth, it's kind of a way of saying that not every person will be under this kind of experience, this kind of uh, horrendous kind of picture here, but it's, it's felt on a great level within the culture and, and with everything that's going on. Now, this is, I want to keep saying this because you just got to understand it. When he says, uh, really, the idea here, Jesus is cutting open the seals That is the decree of God. God is accomplishing His plan. God is doing this. And He may be, you might say, He's the primary cause and there are secondary causes, certainly. And in our world, when we try to somehow like stop some of those people from doing the things that they do or restrain some of the evil, that's not wrong. It's just you need to understand that Christ is executing His purposes and He's doing it to sanctify His church and to judge the wicked. And you'll see that in verse 2, 4, and 8. It was given or it was granted by. God is accomplishing that. Those are divine passives. God is doing those things. Now, so you may ask the question, Jared, why the Holocaust? Why AIDS? Why terrorist attacks? Why famine? Why civil war? And you could certainly say, I see these things going on in our culture and this and that and the other, and it seems to mix itself up into being somehow there are some different things going on in our world, but behind it all, God is accomplishing His plan. God says, I bring darkness and light. I bring prosperity and disaster. I do all these things. Jesus is the author of the calamities that make this world a mess. That's what we see here. I mean, for some of you may say, no, I don't know about that. Well, what are you going to do with this text? And what are you going to do with a lot of other texts in the Bible? You sometimes hear people talk about, somebody mentioned this this week, and I thought it was interesting. Or you, you'll maybe go by somebody's house or like a business is closed and there'll be a big sign out there, beware of dog. And sometimes you're like, come on, is there a dog there? Like, are you serious? Like, if I bust open that place, are they, am I really going to be attacked by this ferocious dog? Is it true? Sometimes, like in this world, people make it out like, it really when it says the scripture tells us to beware of God 
It's no joke. Nobody's faking that. It's not false advertisement. Revelation 6 is not false advertisement. For you, if you are outside of Christ this morning, you will meet him in his wrath. And I would encourage you instead, meet him in his mercy. So we keep moving. Verse 6, 9 through 11, we see the fifth seal. And as you see this on display, uh, I think it's very important for you to kind of see what is going on in heaven. It's really an appeal by the persecuted and glorified Christians to demonstrate his justice by judging their persecutors. And really, you see an answer here. And so really, I think it's important that you understand it because you're kind of getting a glimpse into this heavenly worship setting where they are coming before God. Now, another thing just to note is a lot of people would categorize this as a hymn because you see hymns all the way through Revelation and usually they are summarizing what the earlier verses have said. And so I think this theme of judgment and suffering continues here as you observe the the, the martyrs, those who have experienced the difficulties on display in verses 1 through 8. So let's look at verse 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then, uh, then they were given a, whi- a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of the fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So some Christians, again, have been slain for their commitment to Christ. Uh, You remember in Sardis, in chapter 2, Antipas was killed for his faithful commitment. Again, I think that in the light of this, you say in verses 1 through 8, this is troubled times. In, In between the first and second coming, there are many different ways, many dangers, toils, and snares. And that's what the writer in Amazing Grace said that I have already kind of walked through. His grace has, has brought me safe thus far and His grace will lead me on. And so we as the saints of God are experiencing trouble. And the reality is some will die for the faith. And I think in one way though you could say that this speaks to all believers who are suffered as they have sought to live for Christ in this present evil age. It encourages them. They speak to him and they appeal to God as the one who's holy and true. They are appealing to his character and they're saying, God, you know who you are. When are you? You are a just God. That's what they're saying. You are perfect in your justice. When are you going to deal with all the wickedness? When are you going to finally and fully put away all these wicked people and address this forever? How long will we suffer really injustice? God, you're just. You must deal with these things. They are asking how long. You see that in Psalm 79, 10, where the, the same question comes to the forefront. And, and, and what, what you see here is what is partially done in verses 2 through 8 will be finally done in 12 through 17. God will finally judge his enemies forever. But notice the answer for the moment. He tells them, Really, to wait. It's not just wait, but it's almost like to rest. You don't, you don't have to worry about, I'm going to bring this to pass. I will 
punish the wicked. They are given white robes, which are a sign, really, that they were faithful, that they've been purified through the suffering. And they're given that sign, they're covered with it, and they're told to rest and to wait. It symbolizes this purity and this process of they've been refined again through their suffering. Wait a little longer. Sometimes for us, when we think about waiting, we hate waiting. And we think waiting means just like 10 minutes. I have to wait for my meal. But in God's mind, when God speaks of things, it's not always like this immediate thing to us. And so I think what we have to ask, maybe as we look here, is what is God interested in, in the moment? What God is doing is, in the moment, He is allowing His people to walk through suffering and allowing them to grow in faithfulness, and then He's taking them away. It's kind of the idea. He has got a plan that He is working out. And really what you see is the answer for them is, when God, the fullness of God's people, He's brought all His people in, and He has grown them in faithfulness, and He's accomplished the plan He has for them, then the time will come when He will judge the wicked. We have to ask ourselves even, like when we're thinking about this life, what do we want most? I think our calling is to be found faithful. To be found faithful in this life so that we will be among His people in the life to come. Another thing I think is interesting is the saints' prayers. As a saint prays in the way that they ought to, They are participating in the plan of the ages. God is working out His plan through His people. He is accomplishing His plan. And we get to participate in it. Sixth seal. Let's look at this in verses 12 through 17. These verses express the explicit and final answer to the prayer in verses 9 through 11. This time is the last judgment. When the Lord, when the full number of the suffering saints has come to its place... Then the Lord executes his judgment. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when they shake by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand You see here in this moment, this great earthquake later will be shown again in Revelation. And it's also presented as the final judgment throughout these these texts. And you see them in the Old Testament passages in Isaiah where we'll see this final judgment on display. The great wrath, the day of great wrath has come. And the picture again here is that they are going through, uh, they're going to experience great travail and God is going to judge the wicked finally and forever. 
with the Christian as a pilgrim. He is moving through this life, through, through all the dangers and toils and snares. He is going through that. But the reality is, is that day will cease for the believer and he will be with the Lord. But the reality is for the unbelieving people, the earth dwellers, those who have made their life in this age, those who have hoped in the false messiahs of this age, they will finally be judged forever. And that's what you're seeing on this and on display in this moment. They have taken their refuge in the false gods of this age and they will end up with the false gods of this age. We see the lamb taking this last scroll here in this picture and he is stripping away all their hopes. They've been able to trust in all these things in this world and now even the kings of the earth, the very richest and the very poorest earth dweller will now face the Lamb and they will not face Him in His mercy but in His judgment. And they will be crying out for the rocks to come down and crush them as if that they would escape Him even in death. The reality is Jesus says in John chapter 5 that He is going to resurrect even the dead. And some will be judged and some will have eternal life. But it's important, I think, to note here this morning is, this, this is a picture, listen, the, the most uh, amazing saint and the most horrible sinner, as they walk through this life, they face the same struggles. One is purified and prepared for heaven. The other one will be judged eternally in hell. Both of them may die. I mean, some of them, some, I mean, you just have to kind of get that in your mind. Sometimes the righteous die in this life, and sometimes the wicked die in this life. But at the very end, you have to know that when it all comes down, Jesus is not going to be putting his people under the judgment of God. They'll experience eternal bliss with him, but the wicked will be crying out for the rocks to crush them so that they will not endure the wrath of the Son. They do not want to see him because when he comes he is not coming in mercy but judgment and they are crying out please let us die but they don't understand that even if they die they're still going to face him and so I don't know where you are today and I think the main point is this God is just he will repay all the ways that his glory is despised and his his holiness is, is defiled and he is going to judge the earth And although we may experience in small measure some of those things in the present, and we do, ultimately, if you are in Christ, you have hope of a future. If you are not, one day He is coming, and it will not be these small judgments. It will be eternal torment in hell. So wherever you are today, I would call out to you, turn to the Son in mercy, or you will face Him in His wrath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We just pray that you would bless us in our reception and receiving of it. That by the power of your spirit, that you would awaken dead hearts that may be lost and outside of Christ today and turn them to you. For believers that are experiencing great trouble, who have watched disease and death and disorder and war and all those things happen, I pray that they would see that you're not separate from them. That you are working out your plan through them. That you're preparing them for heaven. And that one day, those judgments will cease. And they will be in the presence of the Son. And they will know 
the glorious purposes He had and that they will experience forever joy with Him. In Christ's name, amen.